We have a name. Drum roll, please. Everybody. Every row. Okay, we got the name. It's the Battle Ready Podcast with Earl McManus. Here we go. I have a Battle Ready sticker here. And if you haven't read The Last Era or been to our church before, there's an amazing talk on YouTube by my father and, um, called Battle Ready. And it, it kind of is the culmination of the, be- the beginning of a journey that you fought cancer and, and won and in the process of winning. And, um, and so it's been a, it's been a really... You know, that was December of last year, and it's almost been one year. And it's crazy because while I was praying last night and the lights were flickering off and on, and it was weird, I was like, God, are you here? Like, I know you say you're in my heart, but are you in the lights right now? <laughs> uh, I was just so grateful and moved to think that a year later, after maybe one of the most hellish years that we've ever had, uh, tumultuous times, um, brutal experiences, and I only watched it. You actually had to go through it. Um, we're here a year later. We have two new campuses. You have a beautiful book that's right here with your beautiful face on it. <laughs> Finally. You, don't, you have no idea what it, It's right here. This is a commercial. The Last Arrow. Save nothing for the next life. Because um, you don't get two of them. Uh, it's so crazy. So it's just cool to be here a year later. And then the idea of the Battle Ready podcast is one of the chapters at the end. And you changed that fourth quarter, like at the last minute. But uh, the idea of the battle-ready conversation is uh, we're all going through battles in our life, whether it's work, relationships, um, whether it's um, businesses that you're starting, whether it's relationships that are beginning or ending, and whether it's in church or outside of church. I think that's the thing that we can always talk about. Like we are always in a journey as humans, right? Uh, whether you're in a battle or you're out of a battle, getting ready for another battle. So the Battle Ready podcast is our way of talking about practical things impractically. That's all I got. I'm the impractical side. Yeah. Okay. I'm the summary. So I don't talk as much except for this part and the part 30 minutes from now. (laughs) When I try as best as I can to summarize the interstellar that is you. And if you haven't been to conference, you gave a talk called Event Horizon which, what is that? You talked about black holes and our souls and legitimately blew people's minds. So I am here to basically be the Matt, was it Matt Damon? The Matt Damon of, of your mind. The, the tangible. I think I'll just that say a good thank you. That's a great introduction. Here we go. And so welcome to, welcome to the podcast. Give a clap. Yeah. How do you follow that? And what we're going to talk about tonight is resilience. And each time we're going to talk about something that is not just a theory, not just a theory, not something that's just an idea that needs to be explored. It's uh, something that we can identify that's a real need uh, in the people we care about and the people in our lives and the people around us and in our community. And even that um, we get to see as a part of the challenge across the world. When, um, when, I, when I wrote The Last Arrow, one of the things that really did strike me, even in the imagery, was it's around the, a moment in the life of King Jehoash and Elisha. And, and those of you who've been reading the book, you're familiar with the story about how Elisha tells the king to shoot an arrow through the window. And, and he does that, and he tells him to take an arrow and strike it to the ground. And he strikes it three times, and he stops. Elisha becomes angry. And, and, and what's amazing to me is before he starts, Elisha tells him, you're going to have a complete victory. So that's, that's the starting point. You're going to have a complete victory. But the ending point was, why did you do this? Now the victory in your life will only be partial. Wouldn't it traumatize you if you could have actually looked back on your life and realized that God always wanted to give you a complete victory and you settled for a partial victory? See, I think a lot of times we kind of feel like we want more than God wants for us and God's really cheap and he's holding out on life. And we're, we're trying really, really hard to, to grab life that God doesn't want us to have. And so we war against God. And we have this whole thing backwards. 
God wants more for us than we could ever ask or imagine. But somewhere along the way, there's always a process that is necessary for us to become receptive to that life, to that gift. And so even though Elisha said, God's going to give you a complete victory, there was something that had to happen inside of Jehoash's soul for him to receive that complete victory. And he quit. And one of the things that has always confounded me was how some people fail over and over and over and over again and just never give up. They just do not quit. They just get up and get up and get up. And then other people, they have one significant failure in their life or two. And it just leaves them shipwrecked for the rest of their life. And the hard thing about it, the difficult thing is that they can point to something really devastating in their life and say, this is why I can't move on. And it's hard to argue with because you go, yeah, it's pretty bad. Except there are other people who have faced that and 10 times more. And so I wanted, to, I wanted us to have a conversation around resilience and why it's important, why it's so difficult to take on. How do you, be, how do you become resilient? How do you develop that, that um, muscle in your soul. And um, Aaron, I know you were looking at some particular passages. You had a couple of thoughts about resilience. But, um, you know, the opposite side of this is quitting. Yes. And, uh, yes. and, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to talk about your area of expertise for a few moments. And, uh, Thank you. <laughs> okay. Let's get those out early. Let's get those out early. Uh, I'm only just what Aaron was telling me before he came here. I quit AYSO soccer twice and then college twice. And he's held it against me forever. Uh, yeah, I, I, we, we've been talking about this a lot, actually. Because I feel like I'm an expert in quitting and failure. And you're an expert in resilience. That's going to roll. You good? You, are you hot? Um. And, and we were talking a lot about this morning having, you're so cool. <laughs> Did you plan that? You're like, I'm going to have him, the other cool guy, catch my jacket. <laughs> Did you? If I threw it, it would end up on the floor, by the way, a foot in front of us. But I think that's, that's a great metaphor for the difference between quitters and people who don't quit. Um, no, I, you know, I think we were talking about that this morning in... in the difference between, uh, there were, there's obvious moments in my life where I could definitely blame a teacher or a bully or my situation or my surroundings or the fact that people were trying to kill you at one point, that was dark, um, or the fact that cancer was trying to kill you or the fact that I went through a bad breakup, a few of them, and, like, and just the fact that <laughs> you guys get this out early. <laughs> No, but I, we were talking about this morning, and I think the difference was, um, and you, we talked about this. I said, I think I quit a lot because I saw y- your relationship to maybe where you were at in the workplace and church, and, 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 and I felt like there's, there's no one in the world that's going to take control over my life and determine whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. So in New York, I really had to figure out whether I was in the jobs that I didn't like, sorry, I had one job where I was a really bad employee, maybe two. I started working for you first. I got good at that. Second one was this charity water, Scott Harrison, you were a great man because I was a terrible employee and I didn't, and I think a lot of it was because I didn't fit the culture. I didn't, couldn't figure out what was going on and I was out of control. I didn't like that I was under someone else's control. And it wasn't until kind of God broke that down in me that uh, to release that control, to release, uh, we talk about control a lot because I think I'm someone who holds on tightly and gets real scared and real nervous. And then we'll move on to the next thing because I go, okay, so the next thing has a fresh start. Like everybody loves that fresh start. Everybody loves the first two weeks of school. You get new backpacks, you get new clothes. Your mom's stoked because she gets rid of you for whoever long. And, like, well, you don't realize that till later, that, that that's why your parents are so happy for you. <laughs> like, summer's over, child. You're going away. <laughs> it's a day prison. And, um, <laughs> and uh, no, but I think that's the difference, right? Is that, and I said that, I asked this, I said, hey, I let a lot of things in my life affect 
my decisions to stick with things or to quit. You didn't. You had just as many things that were trying to hurt you, just as many things that were in your way, just as many things in your family. You didn't have two great parents that loved you. They do now. They, come, they came around. One of them came around. Um, but you have a tough story. And yet you persevered, you pushed through, and you continually uh, let nothing define you. Did, but you. But you also struggled. We had similar stories. You, you, weren't good, you weren't great at school, even though you were athletic and I wasn't. I showed up to freshman year wearing a sweater vest, a cutoff sweater vest, and a part <laughs> down the middle, and a pink roller backpack. Uh, yeah. And then he got home from a trip and said, what happened to you? <laughs> and then uh, it didn't That was get, his mother. That was, was his mother. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. So my question to you is this. There were moments, obviously, where you failed. There were moments, obviously, where you didn't meet up to expectations. What was the difference? What was, what was the moment that you decided that you were going to no longer let being average define you? What other people would call you as average define you? That's a really good question. You ever feel like you make like big decisions for your life and they last about five minutes? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to be that way again until later. <laughs> you know? So I feel like I made, I made that big decision a lot of times. And, but, uh, but it was like having a giant boulder on your chest and trying to exhale. I wanted to be different, but you have life patterns that make you the same. And you have to begin to break those patterns one at a time at a time. And so I did use um, defining moments. Whenever I had a, a moment where there was something that, that shifted, I tried to use it as moments to capture my life. Like um, we moved from Miami, Miami, Florida, awesome, and to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, uh, oh, I know. And, uh, wow, look at that. And, uh, it was tough, let me tell you. I went from the epicenter of Latino North America to um, a state where they'd never seen a Latino. And, uh, but they knew they didn't want them. And uh, so it was challenging. But um, I had, like, three months' notice knowing we were moving. So I told myself, in three months, no one's going to know me, and I can, I can redefine who I am. So that was one of those moments, and I was 15 years old, where I made a decision to redefine myself. And, and so sometimes I had to like, um, take advantage of a transitional moment in my life and go, no one knows who I am. Because part of the challenge, and this is an insight it, it gave me, is that when, when you're around people and they know you, sometimes they're the reason that it's hard for you to change. Because if people only see you from the worst you, they actually tie ropes to your soul, holding you back to who you were, not who you want to become. And since I didn't grow up with faith, I didn't grow up in church, I didn't have the experience of people who were seeing the best in me, trying to pull me forward. And, uh, and, and, and so some of it was then, then trying to find people in the world that looked a little bit more like what I wanted to become like. And pull myself by the, almost like the momentum of their life. And, and I think in some ways that's a part of why I became attracted to, um, to Jesus. Was because he personified for me everything I wanted to become. And I thought, you know, maybe I can use like the momentum of him to become the person I want to become. And then I started meeting Christians and everyone else has like negative experiences, things like with Christians, but I had really positive experience with Christians. I don't know why. I just met the good ones. You know, I mean, you know, Where were they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, you know, almost 20, I was basically 20 years old and I met all these amazing human beings. I mean, the girls were beautiful. The guys were cool. And the ones that weren't cool were just kind. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know and, uh, but they, they were all, t in, from my perception, just simply better human beings than me. And, uh, and they were willing to be around me. And uh, so I felt like they were slumming to relate to me. And, and, and so I think a part of what, like, moved me out of meocrity was um, not like, like success goals. I want to be a millionaire or I want to start my own company, or I want to do this. My, my, my goals were human goals. I want to become a better human being. I want to be a person who's compassionate. I want to be a person who's kind. I want to be a person who's uh, trustworthy. And ironically, the human goals 
transformed my organizational goals, my success goals, my life goals. But I didn't know. I, was, I wish I could say I was smart enough to have known this. I didn't know they were connected. I didn't know that what I was doing was let, allowing God to change the material inside of me to be able to live a much bigger life. And, and so that's some of what, so when we talk about resilience, I, I think one of the challenges is that you, that, hold on, just to go deeper into that, you worked a lot of really bad jobs. Oh my gosh. Did, I, I've done everything. And I remember in Miami, me and my brother told my mom, we're moving to New York to be garbage men. <laughs> No, why? Why? It was on a list for the highest paid job in America. That's why. <laughs> and I thought, I can do that. I can hang on the back of a truck. I think I'm you know, garbage, save a ton of money. And my mom's like, so this, this is your goal. And, and we're like, what's wrong with it? New York, garbage? It's like lots of it. You're always going to have a job. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> no. But um, so, yeah, I had really huge aspirations. but in in that did you feel like the the cutting down trees the installing you have a really amazing story about installing uh, insulation oh I used to install insulation with asbestos and uh, I was asbestos asbestos asbestos. like with Aaron McManus on the podcast I I was an I was an orange picker in orange groves I, uh, I worked as a lumberjack. I worked as a carpenter. I worked construction. I was a librarian believe it or not and uh, um what? You said no. You were getting polls. I had so many jobs. I mean, you just name it, I did it. And um, Do you feel like that helped build up into living a life of resilience? Uh, well, I do. I mean, because I was just, well, one, I was moving from job to job to job to job, and I was terrible at all of them. So you were quitting a lot? Um, no, I, I, I would be encouraged to quit. And, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't. We picked oranges for one day, and the, the, I'm, this is I, how every one of those stories starts. <laughs> by the way, I was bleeding everywhere. I didn't know orange trees had thorns, and uh, so I was cut to shreds. Me and my brother did not pick enough oranges to pay for our gas that day. The manager of the orange group called me and my brother in, and he said, "Hey, look, boys, I'm going to fill your car up with gas, and you're not going to come back tomorrow." <laughs> So, so that was my career as an orange picker, but I gave it everything I had. But let me tell you what it did. It made me realize that people who don't make a lot of money work really hard. But I also discovered like inventiveness. While we were picking oranges, climbing those trees, dropping those oranges, crushing them. And uh, we saw this little old African-American man, probably in his 70s, sitting in a lounge chair. He had built this long fishing pole rod and connected it to a contraption where he could just throw it up to trees and strip all the trees of oranges. And he was dropping oranges perfectly into the crates that he had. He filled up like five giant crates by himself on from a lounge chair while me and my brother worked all day to fill a half a crate. <laughs> and I realized every hard job has a more intelligent why. And I read the, the words of... Um, of a character, I think in a Highline book called Lazarus Long. And it said that uh, Lazarus Long, they thought he was a genius, but he was actually the laziest man who ever lived. And uh, he just was always determined to find the easiest way to do the hardest task. And, and so that said, so even like we're, we're picking those oranges, it taught me, I, th- I thought, there was a man who figured out how to do a hard job, a smart way. So everything was like that in my life, you know, where I felt like, I was learning from the hard work even when I failed over and over again. And, um, but I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. I didn't have a purpose or an intention around it. So it was easy to quit because none of my jobs gave me any meaning in life. And I, and I think that's a part of the problem. I think a part of the reason a lot of us don't develop resilience is that it, um, our work isn't connected to meaning. And if we don't find what we're doing meaningful, it's easier to give up, isn't it? Yeah, we were um, talking about one of the definitions of resilience and how resilience is um, like if you look at like what three images of uh, what were the three trees? Is the oak tree, the eucalyptus tree and the palm tree. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because some people are like oak trees they are unmovable and storms blow. But if the storm's strong enough, it literally pulls the oak tree out by the roots. 
Uh, eucalyptus trees grow fast, they look strong, but actually they're brittle and they're worthless. But the trees that actually can survive like hurricanes and storms are palm trees because they're highly adaptive and they move with the wind and reshape themselves based on the force of nature. And resilience is not becoming an oak where you're immovable and, uh, or becoming eucalyptus that you grow fast but are just brittle and fragile. It's really becoming like a palm tree that you can adapt and adjust to life situations. And I think this is actually the key to resilience. The key to resilience is the ability to adapt to unexpected circumstances in your life. And so if you need everything to be the same, everything to be predictable, everything to be protected, your resilience is going to be really, really low. And if you learn how to adapt, if you learn how to adjust, if you learn how, in a sense, to live life like jazz, and um, then you get to, um, to enjoy the spaces in between the notes in life. So good. Can we go in? Go yeah, on. Let's go in. Um, so interesting. This, we didn't talk about doing this, but we were, this morning we had breakfast. We talked about how my generation is a little soft. The generation before you fought a war. Some, some of your generation fought a second war in Vietnam. And then we have your generation, which seemed to have grown up without fathers, um, most of you. And, um, and, and it seems like you became the generation that basically created what it is that we have modern society as far as technology and computers and innovation and creativity and, and in so many ways. Uh, suburbia uh, galleries... Uh, what else? Disneyland, uh, like, like like Netflix, Game of Thrones. Um, but we talked about this, and, and a lot of it was out of this me asking advice because I did something really dumb on Sunday. I had a conversation with someone, a friend, but not not super close, and and it was a, a private conversation. And and I saw something that they had posted on an Instagram about they were at like three churches that week, and I was like. I kind of just said, you go to a lot of churches, LOL, because if you say LOL, it makes everything better. And uh, I didn't really know him well enough to kind of like to, to call him out. But I don't know why, but I think, I think it's like my job to call everybody out, and i got to work on that. That's the thing I'm going to work on, resilience and kindness. Um, every topic that we talk about, my parenthetical will be kindness. <laughs> and, um, but no, but, and then I used it in my offering talk on Sunday night. I said, when you give... Um, if you go to three churches, you're never, I hope you give three times, but you're probably not because you're probably just taking three times, uh, actually growing. People think, think that more churches they go to or the more church you go to, you're going to grow that many times faster. But the reality is that when you have so many different voices, you actually don't end up growing in any which way. I think oftentimes it's why they don't want you to double major in college. For the few of you that double majored and are brilliant, different story. But, uh, but I think... We had this, so we started to have this conversation. So, you know, I'm sorry, I apologized. After I got, after she, so I, I got home to the longest DM of the world, mad at me that I called her out, and then um, more mad that I used it in, in an offering talk, and then even more mad because I'm judging her because she wanted to get closer to God. But it kind of missed the whole point. And then I asked you basically for advice going, hey, I feel like oftentimes our generation misses the entirety of the point. I was saying it's simple. Don't go to three churches because you, you don't grow at any of the three. You don't do life with any in particular person. Um, but then we get to a place where I feel like, and you said basically, your, your generation just doesn't take critique well. Your generation doesn't actually, you said they might have missed the point entirely. And I say might because they might be in this room and then she's going to be more mad at me. Um, but you know what? Like you're talking to me and I get to talk. So this is real life. But I think our generation forgets the value of sticking with it. And I think resilience is so oftentimes broken down to, uh, we were talking about consistency, but really isn't consistency. It's commitment. You know, because we were talking about this, this back to the chef's table of, of, or this movie that I really like called Burnt with Bradley Cooper. No one saw it, um, but it's really good. And, uh, and they had this conversation between two chefs, and he's sitting at Burger King, and, and he basically says, uh, do you want a burger? And she goes, absolutely not. I'm a chef. I want real food from chefs. And he goes, this is real food. Uh, this is what everyday people eat on minimum wage. She goes, I am a chef. I make minimum wage. Um, and it was like a joke. And uh, that obviously isn't funny when you retell it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and basically... What, what this like conversation happens 
is that uh, he says the problem with this burger isn't that we're using the same ingredients, but they're using it in a, in a more um, mass-marketed or mass-manufactured uh, way. It's the fact that consistency kills. And, and we're talking about like consistency can kill, but also you have to have consistency at a high quality to be, to be resilient, right? If your consistency is at a low quality, it doesn't matter how resilient you, you are, you will fail every time. Um, but if your commitment is to being consistent and to being faithful and to being disciplined, uh, you can achieve resilience. And that was one of the things that you were, you were saying. I, I don't know if it made any sense at all, but I do really wish you would speak on maybe the attributes of resilience. How do you gain resilience? How do you keep resilience? And how do you grow into being consistently resilient where you don't have to be as resilient because you fail less? Well, I do think that's a great image. A lot of us, I mean, who, do, who wants to be Burger King or who wants to be, you know, like Central, the, you know, the number one chef in the world? I mean, if you're going to be a meal, would you rather be a gourmet meal or, you know... Or punched out burger. And, uh, and I think the reality is that most of us want to be a gourmet meal, but we want to make the choices of the burger. And we just end up living, because when you choose to live a life that doesn't stick things through, you actually don't develop the internal virtues and characteristics you need to do things at an extraordinary level. That when you choose to be average, you become just that like everyone else. You become an assembly line project and product. When you actually give yourself to something and stick yourself, uh, stick into it and stay with it, you actually become great. I mean, I look back and I go, like when I was working construction, I I never had a desire to be the greatest construction worker in the world for the rest of my life. But I did, when I did it, decide I'd be the best that I could be in my life right then. And what you don't really realize is that you actually take those characteristics everywhere you go. That those are transferable. That the skills and um, values and virtues that you take on when, you're, uh, when you take on resilience, when you decide, I'm going to keep going, I'm not going to give up. Even when I fail, I'm going to get back up, I'm going to get back up, I'm going to get back up. Those are the things you learn. Like, you know, they called, what's his name, um, uh, is it Valentino was supposed to be the greatest lover, you know? And, uh, and, I, and I remember saying years ago, it's funny how they would identify a guy as the greatest lover because of how many women he loved. Because actually, he's not a great lover. He's a really poor serial lover. And because if, if, you, if you, quote, love a thousand people, you only made it to that 1% of your capacity to love. See, I'm a great lover. I've been married 34 years. And, uh, <laughs> Come on. Because great love can only be known with great commitment. And when you move from thing to thing, from project to project, from church to church, from job to job, from human to human, you're actually moving through the path of least resistance. And, and, and that's the danger, even in like your, your dating relationships. If you just keep going from person to person to person, you're never growing. You're actually facing the same internal problem over and over and over and over again. And you'll notice that your relationship blows up at the exact same place in the next relationship because you didn't deal with the thing that ended the last relationship. Okay, time out. <laughs> I learned this. <laughs> Whenever he blows your mind, time out. Uh, every guy in this room should write that down. So, but it's also that, with can you. Say that, well, hold on. Before you go and blow our minds again, can you say that one more time? Zero dating. Yeah. If you keep moving from, the, from one person to another person, another person, another person, it just keeps blowing up at the same, about, same place. You've, you actually have an emotional um, roadblock that you think you're traveling a long journey. Because you've gone 100 miles, one mile, 100 times. But what your soul is looking for is one person you can travel 1,000 miles with. And you've got to learn how to break through. Some of you are so terrified of honesty and intimacy that you can't move to the next level in the relationship. Because the moment it requires you to be transparent, you bail. 
and, and you become self-destructive. How many of you, I mean, I don't want you to raise your hand because only one of you is going to be honest and go, oh, yeah, and then, you know. And, uh, but how many of you know that you have self-destructive patterns in your life that when the moment something good's going to happen, you blow yourself up? Hey, there was, it's, always, it's always a woman, but she raised her hand. Quickly, <laughs> but it was a woman. No, how, how many of you have seen that even in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not just true in relationships, it's also in, at work. You know, and it's, it, look, if it's always your boss, I promise you, it's always you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know? And, uh, if it's, and if it's always your job, it, it's always you. And, and so you need to look and go, is there like a pattern in my life that just keeps blowing up? Because this is where I need to develop resilience. This is where I have to fight it through. So I can get to the other side of this uh, part of being human in my life. And, and so I, I look back and probably there are things I committed to that maybe I shouldn't have committed to. Because uh, when I give my word, I just don't break my word. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep commitments that I wish I hadn't have made. And, um, and part of the reason for that is because I look at, if you give your word, you have two options. You can go beg to be released and go, man, I should not have made that commitment. Would you, like, release me? Or you keep your word. And, and a, lot of, like, a lot of people go, I, I don't have to keep my word because it's just, you know, it's just what I thought yesterday is what I believed yesterday. And, you know, you're breaking a promise, but you're doing something else. You're setting a pattern in your soul for the person you've, you're becoming. And then the day when you want to keep your word, you won't have the internal strength to be able to keep your word. Because you've actually weakened that muscle where you're not capable of being resilient. And, and I think this is why it's so important. Let me just go real quickly. I know our time is really up. Are you, you good? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Just a couple of like, uh, quick things. One is like, um, just do like some self-assessment. Go to your friends and go, hey, um, am, I, am I fickle? <laughs> and uh, like, Go to your friends and go, do I keep my word to you? Do I keep my promises to you? Like, don't treat any promise as small. If you say to someone, hey, I'll meet you for coffee, show up. You, you know? And uh, we live in a culture where if, uh, not showing up doesn't seem to be a problem, and showing up late doesn't seem to be a problem. And, you know, it's like, keep your commitments because you're, you're not just building a reputation with another person. You're actually building an internal structure for your own life. And so when you keep commitments you don't want to keep, it's amazing. You'll find the strength to keep the commitments you want to keep. Like uh, every time I have a book deadline, I have a looming reality in front of me. I've made a commitment to a publisher. And there's a lot of people connected to that. And if I don't keep that commitment, it dominoes and affects a lot of people. And what's interesting to me is that um, on the personality grids, I'm supposed to be a non-structured personality that's massively adaptable and flexible, but I love deadlines. I see deadlines as an opportunity to paint my character up against a wall. Like I get to prove that I've overcome what is a quote, an inherent weakness in me because I have a, I've developed a character base that's stronger than my personality. So don't use your personality as an excuse to um, not be resilient. And, and it's also like, I look at like workplaces. I tell, look, when I have friends, if you're sick all the time at your job, you need a different job. Because it means that, you're, um, that you hate your job. And the way that resilience plays out in practical ways where it's lacking is you get sick a lot. You get sad a lot. Um, you, um, you self-destruct a lot. And those are things that you have to let go. Nobody wants that. And you go, yeah, but how do you stop getting sick? How do you stop getting sad? How do you stop uh, crashing and burning? Um, be faithful to the commitments you make, even when you don't want to make them. And when, when I was young, I thought I was a hypochondriac because I was told I was. And, uh, and so I decided that since I didn't know if I was sick, I would never let sickness stop me. And if I, since I didn't know if I was injured, I wouldn't let injuries stop me. And what it did is it created a resilience that no matter how sick I was, 
and uh, I could get on, I could get up on the platform and I could do my job. I could get to work no matter what. And that's why when I was in high school, I broke most of the bones across this hand. I played five more weeks of football with all those bones broken before I went to a doctor. I would not recommend that. No. And, uh, Which, and you've actually, on a lighter note, you've actually, we were talking with someone at a church at a conference, and they, they were saying, they called you, they said, we thought, you know, you, you, you yelled, and you spoke to a stadium of like 30, 40,000 people, and you're dripping in sweat, and you came off, and the lead pastor came up and was like, I thought you were a conversationalist, and I thought you were just like a sit-on-a-stool type of guy, and then you asked me, I remember you came back, and you told me, you're like, that's what he said to me, and I said, wait, didn't you sit on a stool when you like broke your ankle, but you would fake that you could walk? So then you'd walk to this, you'd, you were literally on crutches for like six months or four months. You'd use the crutches to the side stage. You'd walk to the stool with the cane and then you'd sit on the stool and then it became a trend. Yeah, and I it, actually tore the Achilles in half and my calf ripped in half. So I had no calf for a year and uh, I heard it explode. Yeah. And, but I, but I, I didn't want people on, on stage to worry about me being injured. So I would just take a deep breath, walk on stage like I had no injury without a calf and or a Achilles. And then I'd sit down like I was doing it as a new approach toward communication. <laughs> and I say that because we, we also had a conversation. It just hit me now, too, because there was a Bible verse, Colossians 3:24, but you should just go read it because it actually has everything to do with this. Um, but we had this conversation this morning. And I said, you know, I think a lot of my commitment issues were because I watched you make really big commitments and then I watched you just get crushed by them for years. And then, and then it kind of hit me while we were up here and I'm going, oh, if you hadn't made that 15-year commitment to stick with church when you could have done just about anything else in your life, um, we wouldn't be here right now. And we get to live in the reality um, of your resilience and I think it's such a cool thing as a church. It's just such a cool thing as a community. But I also think that like, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're, whether you're in a relationship, uh, and not always with relationships, there's, there's so much more with that. But, in, but with a job, um, when you're working for someone you necessarily don't want to work for, I think that I said to you, I said, did God honor it? You know. And I think you were having a Jedi moment where you knew I was going to figure it out on my own because you didn't say anything back. And I figured it out. <laughs> That, I, that we do, we, we, so much of our decisions, so much of our, we talk about this, like just showing up is so hard for young people. Just showing up on time is so hard. Just actually committing to doing something for four to six weeks is really hard for people to do in LA. Have you noticed that? Like, have you ever had a birthday party and then trying to get friends to it is like the hardest thing because LA is just weird. I, I told them, I was like, I was in New York, like I'd make a friend a day where you'd walk into a coffee shop and, you, and you just, it's a different type of resilience. It's a different type of connectivity when you have community. And I think when you have to beg leaders, and I tie everything to the church because I'm, I'm always doing that. When you have leaders who refuse to be, you, you time out real quick, my brain. Um, I was 17, 16 years old. When you learned to drive in California, 16. Um, I was a late bloomer, so I probably did it seven years later. Uh, 17, and I, and I was... In, we were driving back from downtown LA to where we lived, and it was a good drive. And I remember I was like, I'm really sick. And we were about a mile away from home or two miles away from home. And you were like, hey, look, dude, I don't care. Pretend like I'm not here. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, and I was behind the wheel driving, and I'm like, this is like the, you know, I'm like, dad, pull over. Love on me right now. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, no, like, what if I wasn't here and you're sick? What are you going to do? Pull over, sit here for a little bit? What are you going to do? And, and, and I thought he was being cold. And I realized that and, and this is one of the few things, like, me, like maybe harder moments in my life. And you weren't even that hard. You were just a bit different. Because you, you, you were always, this, you're always the hero. You're always the guy who scooped you up. Oh, man, let me make you feel better. You're like that with, as a leader. You're like that as a boss in and, and every which way. And I remember that because I go, because I, it, it applies now. Like, if you, even if you work for church, sometimes Sundays is just like a normal bad day like everybody else. Like, if you work for a church, it's not like, oh my gosh, Sundays, is, we get to go to church all day for 13 million hours and pretend like we love seeing every single one of you every single time. You know what I mean? Nah? Yeah. Cause, but, I mean, there's a great honor in working for church. 
But church doesn't just happen on Sundays. It happens Monday through, through Saturday and Sundays. And the Sunday part is just the part where we get to all come together, right? We're doing this throughout the week. And, and, and I think that there's so many times where I'm like, I don't want to do this. I do not want to go to this funeral that I got to go to on Saturday, last Saturday. And, and that conversation came up in my mind where it was like, you have no idea what's going to happen in that funeral. You can sit wherever you're going to sit, but are you going to lead? Are you going to learn from those moments? And are you actually going to ingrain resilience into your day-to-day life, whether it's showing up on time or whether it's showing up when someone dies or where it's showing up and celebrating life. And I think as leaders and as people who come together that we let that slide so much. I, I think it's funny when friends lie when they're like, I'm sick, I'm not going to go to work. So they take a sick day. And I'm like, man, that's so cute. Like, you can take a sick day. Like, that. our culture has padded for us to lie. And, and I think, but no, and I'm tying this all together. The, the beauty in all of this, I think as a young person, the way I've watched your life is that you have always told the truth, even when it's hurt. You've always been resilient, even when it hurts, even when you're dragging people through and you're going, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take this one on me. And how do we, I'm going to turn this into a question. How do we, if you could put resilience in your own definition, how do we achieve that? Is that only achievable over 30 years? What I would say is, here's a a starting point. I'm going to give you a couple of more practical things. Whenever you feel stressed out, whenever you feel overwhelmed, whenever you feel like you failed, whenever you're thinking about quitting, the moment you feel like stepping back, step forward. Just like, you can feel it, right? The moment you feel like, ah, I, I just want to like, I just want to retreat. You ever just said to yourself, oh, I'm, this isn't permanent. I'm just going to take a deep breath and back off and, and, and step back. And then next thing you know, you floated off in some distant universe and, you, and you, you never meant to disappear. You never meant to surrender. You never meant to give up. You just meant to take a moment. But that moment was the moment you needed to lean forward. And so I, I, I know in my own life, what I just decided is whenever I feel like I'm too weak to go forward, I go forward harder. And, uh, and that way, you know, I, I win the space forward, not try to win it backwards. And so I just encourage you, you know, um, don't give up on friendships when, when friendships are tough, lean in. Don't give up on community when community is a challenge, lean in. Uh, don't give up on your job. Look, until you have another job, that job is your, like, responsibility to bring greatness there. Like, if you take a paycheck, to me, that's a social contract that you're going to bring the best you've got to the table. And if you're not willing to bring the best you've got, you're stealing money. And you need to bring, and, and I'm telling you, it will prepare you for the moment where you love that job. Because you won't get that opportunity that you love until you're doing the work in a way that you love it. And so there's just a couple of characteristics. One, be faithful. I know it's not a sexy word. Just be faithful. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful in the small things. Don't get mad when, like, the person over you doesn't, doesn't recognize your awesome talent fast enough. You know, and they go, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a king, but they're treating me like a court jester. Be the jester. Be the best jester. Be such an awesome jester. Once, then later, you're the funniest king in the world. And, uh, you know, do what you're asked to do. Be faithful in the small things. And that's Jesus, right? That's the scriptures. Be faithful in the small things. Secondly, um, live a life of gratitude. Grateful people are resilient people. Ungrateful people lack resilience. I can tell you there's a deep connection. When you're ungrateful for life, when you're ungrateful for what you have, when you're ungrateful for your friends, when you're ungrateful for your job, when you're ungrateful to God, you actually become fragile. Ungrateful people are fragile. You know this. You know your ungrateful friends are fragile. And so you can't even tell them you're an ungrateful jerk because they're so fragile. They can't hear it. They can't hear it. You, you know? And so grateful people, I'm telling you, grateful people are resilient. And so if, if you don't know if you're resilient, ask your friends, am I grateful? When they say no, it means you're fragile. And, and if you're worried, I can't ask them one because I don't want to hear it. You're fragile. Okay? Faithful, grateful. And, and the third thing is, is to be humble. Look, humble people are resilient. Arrogant people are not resilient. Uh, Arrogant people get crushed so easily that they attack other people when they fail. 
And uh, you can see that even in pro sports, you can always see the most arrogant athlete because when they lose, they start blaming it on their team. They blame it on the coach. They blame it on life. They blame it on the warrior stacking the game. You know, they, whatever, you know, you blame it on whatever you blame it on. And humble people take responsibility. And because of that, they're more resilient. See, humble people expect to fail. That's part of the perspective of humility. Of course I'm going to fail. I, you know, failure is my friend. I know it well. Arrogant people are shocked when they fail. And so somebody did something to them. Somebody stole their victory from them. If, and, and that's one of the things you, you need to really look at and go, look, and, and humility isn't like a, a fake, I'm nothing. And uh, uh, actually, arrogant people are, are an odd combination of the most insecure people in the world and the most self-indulgent people in the world. And humility is really, look, one of the best ways you can know if you're humble, you want to know how? You're able to identify the greatness in other people. See, because the perch of arrogance cannot see other people's talent. But when you're, stand, when you're standing on the flat plane of humility, you can see the greatness of other people. And so if you can actually identify greatness in other people, you're a more humble person. If all you can see is everything that's wrong with everybody else, you're actually seeing the world through the lens of arrogance. Yeah. Okay? We need to close our podcast. Last thing. Yeah, we just give it up. You're awesome. And your brain, I just wish, I wish we could have an Iron Man moment of your brain where we could like, open it up and let the holograph and whoever is the voice just talk about it. But no, I, I, the last thing I want to point on, because you, you said this, and would you say like leadership in church, just because I want to tie this into here, but leadership in business, however you want to take it, do you think that you're harder on people who are more talented, that come off more talented right off the bat to see if they're resilient? And the second thing would be, do you, I would say that, I don't, this isn't really a question, but these are the two things I, I, know, I know about you, that you look at leaders and go, the guys who come in going, I'm more talented, you go, okay, let's see if you're more talented and see how long you can wait to show me how talented you are. And if you can be committed and resilient in, in this waiting process. And the second part is that I think you are with talented people. If they don't identify talented people, their talent is limited to you their ability to bring up young leaders or bring up more talent? Like, could you speak on those two things? Um, that's a lot. I mean, just to frame it, I just have to go like, um, it's a tricky thing. I tend to not be attracted to people who walk in the room certain of their awesomeness. You know what I mean? Even if they are awesome. Like sometimes it's more irritating because they actually are awesome. <laughs> you know? So annoying. But, but when they're so certain of their awesomeness and, and what they, so they're blind to the awesomeness of others. Like to me, like one of the things I admire so much about Mariah, because I actually think Mariah exemplifies resilience at a really high level. And, um, and the characteristics that um, I've been unwrapping and uh, is that Mariah will not allow a person to emerge based on talent. And, uh, and that's really hard in the world of music and, and worship. Um, because you, what you want to do, especially in this context, is you don't want people using church as a way to give a platform for their ego. And because um, that's just going to hurt them and hurt everybody else too. And, uh, and I know there have been times where we're like, we need that musician. We, we, you know, we, don't, we don't have any oboe players. And, uh, you know, and we just got to bring that really cocky oboe player in. And Mariah's like, no, I'll live my life without an oboe player and, or without a guitarist or without a drummer. In fact, I know Mariah. She would rather do all this without a drummer than have a drummer who hasn't yet learned to walk with humility. And, uh, and I feel like that's one of the things we have to build as a culture because you're not going to get it anywhere else, most likely, to be honest with you. About 75% of all professional athletes are bankrupt, divorced, drug addicted, or dead within three years after they finished their career. And a huge part of that is because it's a system that builds completely on talent 
completely devoid of character. And so athletes are not held to character because what people want is their talent. And it's, it's prostitution. They're prostituting the talent of these individuals and throwing them away when it's over. And so I can show you a system that's the exact opposite of the church. It's the NFL. And, and I can show you the end result of it. But people come to church and want us to have that system. You want to be selected based on your talent and get angry when someone talks to you about your character. And we're going, we're not the NFL. You're not going to start just because you're the best wide receiver. And we're not going to be the, 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 the people who let you do that and at 35 be bankrupt even though you made $250 million during your career because you didn't know how to make good decisions for your life. And, and this is the exact opposite system. We would, we would rather do the hard work of building your character and deprive ourselves of your talent so that one day your talent can be informed by your character and you will be a gift to the world rather than a deficit. And, and that's the same thing with resilience. A part of the reason it's really important to pick a place like Mosaic, like a church, to invest your life, to be committed, is because there are virtually no social structures where anyone will focus on the development of you as a human being. Like, even if you don't believe in God and you're here, even if you're not even sure who Jesus is, if you're not even sure about this whole Bible thing, let me tell you, you need community. Because community is the environment in which we actually become our best selves. And that's why this is so important. And, and going to church isn't going to change you. Becoming a part of community is going to change you. And that's what I would encourage you to do. And, and by the way, it was probably 20 years ago, um, I was doing some work as a futurist and and I, I actually back then felt like resilience was going to be the principal uh, characteristic that's going to become the most valued in culture outside of creativity. Um, human creativity is going to be like the, the commodity going forward. But resilience is the other commodity. It's, it, because hiring highly creative people who aren't resilient is going to cost your organization billions of dollars over time. Just looking from an economic perspective. And resilient people actually in the end play out as more creative than simply creative people. Because you can have a creative idea, and believe me, if you have a creative idea, people will take it from you. And you'll be broken hearted, because if you're not resilient, you won't have another one. You're just going to drown on the rubble of your failure. And so you need both your creative self but you need also your most resilient self and if you can take these two things together you are unstoppable and that's why I want us to have some time and talk about resilience we need to bring our podcast to a close that's your job yeah this is the part so hey did you guys enjoy that it's so good hey um so for audio purposes, this is the Earl McManus Battle Ready Podcast. No, wait, this is the, the Battle Ready Podcast with Earl McManus. And how often do we do it? Every day, except for the days we don't do it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's mad cute. Um, so we're going to sign off to everyone who's listening to the podcast. Signing off. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.